When you look at the world around you, what do you see? I checked the New York Times just to be sure, but here's what I can suggest. Wokeness of all kinds. The new ideal of ideologically defined justice established by social and sometimes legislative pressure. The collapse of gender distinctions, of course. And more commonly, war, violence, and famine of all kinds. This and much more can make sin, sin seem triumphant. Or, if you choose even to look at the church, local or global, what do you see? Increasing resistance to call homosexuality a sin. Members who are lost simply because, over the course of the pandemic, their link to the local congregation weakened and weakened until they are no longer with us. Still closer to home, what do you see when you look at yourself? Patterns of sin? Slow growth in grace? I have intentionally put these questions in a way that foregrounds what's wrong, because if you are like me, this is usually, at least too often, how I look at the realities around me. We might call this problem theological myopia. Being able to see things that are right in front of my face, but not the things that are further off and that are, in fact, more important. So among other things this morning, I want to convince you that this kind of myopia is dangerous. Now, if you glanced at the beginning of chapter 7, you might ask yourself, isn't Micah kind of myopic too? If you look at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7, he seems, at first glance at least, to contradict me and to promote a myopic view of the world. So, as he says there, the metaphorical fruit trees and vines that represent God's people are bare. There seem to be no righteous people left. Those in power in what is supposed to be a functional theocracy are motivated by self-serving pride and evil desires. Now, a hint of where Micah is going with this somewhat pessimistic summary of sins appears in verse 4, where he warns that punishment is in fact coming. But before developing that thought, he goes back to the current situation in which he is living and adds one more nail to the coffin, if you will, the collapse of society and even the family itself because of unfaithfulness, contempt, and even hatred. Now, if these things unsettle Micah, or if the state of the world or the church unsettles us, meaning really makes us unstable and disoriented, it is because we are not properly grounded. We don't see the big picture, to come back to this metaphor of viewing things. That is what the rest of Micah 7, which we read, presents the solution to. This is also where, as we'll see, Micah's theology reaches its fullest expression and where, as far as we can tell, it becomes the most uh, meaningful to the prophet himself. He embodies it and speaks in the first person more than elsewhere in his book. So verse 7, which began our passage, is like a door through which when we pass, we begin to see things in a very different way. The horizon is much broader and much brighter than it was, certainly, in verses 1 through 6. And there's one reason for that. Everything from that point on is seen primarily in light of God, in whom the prophet and the faithful remnant trust. And, obviously, the theological myopia from which one might suffer, if you were just in the perspective of verses 1 through 6, disappears in the brightness of God's glory. So in uh, what follows, I want to listen with you to the voice of the remnant or the prophet 
in this passage and the different tones that it takes because it invites us in various ways to correct and to abandon our spiritual or theological myopia and to see and to respond to the world and the realities that, that are around us which are not necessarily encouraging uh, differently than we probably too often do. Rather than saying, let me put it in these terms, rather than saying, woe is me, I live in a fallen world and everything is falling apart, what we're going to see in this passage should lead us to say something more like this, woe is me if I live in a fallen world where everything seems to be falling apart, without a clear view of the triune God who's working out his saving purposes through Jesus Christ and who must be the focus of my faith, hope, and love. That is the point of Micah 7, and indeed of the whole book. That perspective is dictated by, it's determined by, it's guaranteed by God's character, covenants, and promises. His word is the most solid foundation possible on which to build our lives and our interpretations of reality, what we see around us. So in the time we have together this morning, I want to look with you first at our passage in the context of the book of Micah then explore uh, more in detail several ways that it guides us towards this God-centered perspective on ourselves and on the world by curing this theological myopia. So, first of all, the context. In order to feel more fully the force of what Micah says here in chapter 7, the end of his book, we need to remind ourselves of what he said earlier. The book begins, if you glance at chapter 1, with a powerful image of potentially global judgment, Yahweh comes down from his holy temple, which immediately establishes a contrast between him and where he is going, and treads upon the high places of the earth in power and majesty that melts the mountains and, unless something changes, threatens to destroy Israel and Judah. The prophet, already uh, subjectively involved in his ministry in verse 8 of chapter 1, is deeply saddened by this looming judgment, which appears inevitable because he realizes that it's justified on the one hand and that he can't do anything about it himself on the other. He's not able to, by his own effort, convince his fellow Judeans taking them by the lapels of their robes and producing some kind of transformation in them. And, to be frank, Judah's condition as described in the earlier chapters of the book is simply terrible. Micah's critiques of his fellow citizens must range far and wide to do justice, as it were, to the scope of the problem. That includes, just for chapters 2 and 3, coveting and oppression, opposition to the prophet himself from the religious establishment, violence and brutal treatment even of women and children who's, who are dispossessed of their homes, plots that are hatched by rulers and judges that are so destructive that Micah uses, and this might be the only time at least that I can think of, the metaphor of cannibalism to describe the effects of those plots on the vulnerable majority of the population. And, last but not least, the corruption of the prophetic office itself. Moving to chapter 6, the announcement of judgment at the end of chapter 6 compares the Judeans to faithful worshippers of Baal. The mention of Ahab and Omri alleges of Micah's fellow citizens not only that they're committing idolatry and worshiping other gods, but that they are also oppressing the prophets, as did those two kings in the northern kingdom. And this is something that Micah, again, knew by experience. God's judgment 
of these sins and others elsewhere in the book is going to be proportional, which means it's going to be severe because the sins are severe. Nowhere perhaps is this clearer than in the prediction at the end of chapter 3 in verse 12 that the temple itself, which you'll recall was built according to a divine plan and was graced with God's very presence, will be turned into a heap of ruins and will disappear in the undergrowth, undergrowth that will then cover what was formerly the mountain of the temple. Well, this situation would be entirely hopeless if it were not for Yahweh's sovereign, gracious decision to purify and redeem his people. The first glimpse of this appears at the end of chapter 2 where we get this very concise affirmation that God, as their king, will lead, uh, liberate from captivity and lead somewhere his scattered exiled people. To this, chapter 4 adds a new radically exalted temple to which God's word has drawn peoples and nations to whom he gives grace and blessing. In chapter 5, as you know, there's the promise of a ruler coming from Bethlehem who will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and whose rule will extend to the ends of the earth. Finally, we read near the end of chapter 5 that God will transform the remnant spiritually and morally. You can read a long list of sins that will be removed on the one hand and implying the presence of the contrasting obedience on the other. As a result, their role then among the nations is either as it were, a savor of life to life or of death to death, to paraphrase Paul. This brings us back then to the I of verse 7 of chapter 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Now, the stresses on the first person language is not to emphasize the role of the person in this uh, and wander from our Calvinist convictions, but rather to underline the involvement of the person in this situation with God as his focus. So as I was hinting, the first person language throughout this passage draws us in and encourages us to identify with the prophet, or more precisely, to view the realities of our day the way that he viewed the realities of his day. This perspective is, as you can pick up from the word but, first of all, in sharp contrast to the hopeless situation in verses 1 through 6, which is just before the section that we read. But as for me, the remnant rejects, first of all, the beliefs, the methods, the goals of the majority of Judean society. Violence, disobedience to God's good law, the pursuit of material wealth, dishonesty as a way of getting ahead, and unfaithfulness calculated to advance myself and my standing. At the same time, not to simply pull a superiority move on the general population, the remnant honestly acknowledges to God its guilt. I have sinned against him. And this is where it all begins. If we're looking for a shift of transformation, this is the point of departure. If we are not profoundly aware of our guilt, if we don't look to God in Christ as our only Savior, if we haven't passed from death to life, we're not hearing or understanding what Mike is saying. In fact, our problem isn't spiritual myopia in that case, it's spiritual blindness and deadness. But as I was saying, the but that begins verse 7 owes its existence not to the remnant's faith, although that is crucially important, but fundamentally to the glorious fact that God will, in the language of the text, plead its case and bring it into the light by vindicating and justifying it. 
This is possible, obviously not because the remnant deserves it, but only because God graciously saves those who call upon him. He is the God of my salvation. This deliverance, along with the sanctification spelled out in chapter 5, constitute the remnant's identity. It is on this basis and from this perspective that the remnant views everything else and itself. So, we too must adopt this way of seeing things if we are to think and to act as we ought to in these last days. The remnant's deliverance is not yet realized, but it possesses it and enjoys it by faith. The tone of verses 7 and following, even though nothing has yet come about, is definitely not pessimistic, quite the contrary. The eye of faith sees beyond the enemy who currently has the upper hand to the day when God and his people will be vindicated and their enemies shamed and condemned. And, let's do some justice to the Old Testament context, although the remnant's deliverance from its enemies in Judah and outside Judah's borders is part of what it hopes for, the ultimate focus of its hope is full deliverance from sin and its consequences. This is not importing the New Testament into Micah 7. It's there in Micah 7. Notice on the one hand how theological the voice of the enemy is. The enemy knows where to hit. Where is Yahweh your God? The implication is clearly he is not visible. He's not doing anything at present. And notice, on the other hand, how strongly the remnant longs for the full accomplishment of its deliverance from sin. Verse 9, he will bring me out into the light. We've got a literally binary contrast from darkness to light as you move through the passage. This hope has been realized in large part to come to our context in Christ's earthly ministry. God has fully revealed his righteousness in the death and resurrection of his Son. Believers are encouraged to call God Father to approach him through Jesus Christ with confidence as his adopted children. This point about the full deliverance from sin may appear to be only tangential to the idea that the way we look at the world must take account of God's work. But, what I'm getting at is something subjective here, we can't ignore the effect of God's work on the eyes with which we see the world. Think of 1 John 3. We are called children of God, and so we are. So God says something. It needs to be taken as definitive of, in this case, who we are. We need to live in that way. It's definitive of who we are now, and in the same passage in 1 John, it's definitive of what we will be and how we should act now in light of that. When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, yes. And that hope, John says, leads us to purify ourselves. So what God says about us that will be realized in the future is to have an effect on how we see things and how we act now. In other words, the experience of salvation in which God comes to me as an image bearer dead in trespasses and sins and brings me to spiritual life monergistically through the virtue of the life, death, and resurrection of his incarnate son changes me both instantaneously and progressively. This is impossible even to summarize, and we don't need to. For the moment, my point is simply that every believer comes to know in the most personal and convincing way possible the power of God to save graciously, sovereignly, fully, and forever. That ongoing experience must change, to come back to this point, how I see the world and God's work in it. So, that's the first perspective. Verses 11 to 13 invite us 
to embrace and experience Micah's message in a second way, by hearing the word of the Lord to his people as we long for the culmination of his kingdom. Let me read these verses again, and I encourage you to receive them as words of comfort and encouragement in light of Christ's life, death, resurrection, intercession, and reign. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary, so he's speaking to the remnant as a, as a personified city here. In that day the boundary shall be far extended, in that day they shall come to you from Assyria and from the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain, but the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants, it's outside the city that is, because of the fruit of their deeds. This perspective is global, to say the least, and powerful. The remnant, the daughters Zion is to believe and to know that her population will be multiplied exponentially. Her walls, metaphorically, must be expanded to accommodate all those individuals that God will add to his people. Micah begins, probably with some rhetorical intention behind it, by mentioning two former enemies, Assyria and Egypt, in fact, current enemies in the case of certainly Assyria, who marked the northern and southern limits of, God, of God's people experience in history until that time. What we are dealing with then, what this passage presents, is the transformation of enemies not just into friends, but into brothers and sisters in the same family of faith. Something of an echo of chapter 4, the coming of the nations to Jerusalem to hear Yahweh's word and to learn from him. God's purposes for the world are, marv purposes for the world are marvelously broad and rich. And indeed, the horizon in verse 12, if you're looking at that, quickly expands to include the whole world, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. There's a kind of, there's a very productive connection of Abrahamic and Davidic themes here that runs through this whole chapter and is the motor for uh, the movement from the despair-inducing dis uh, situation in 1 through 6 to the section we're considering. Verses 16 and 17, if you look at them, focus on the nation's abandoning of the power in which they trusted, their own and that of their allies, their stupefaction when they f realize that God is in fact supreme, but also their transformation into those who submit to and fear Him. This message of global salvation is rooted in God's covenantal promises to Abraham to make him the father of a multitude of nations, as you know, Genesis 17 and elsewhere, and to David to give him the nations as his heritage. Now, if you jump forward to the book of Acts, Luke is obviously enthusiastic as he recounts the beginning of the fulfillment of these promises in the early church. And, to jump further forward in time, the subsequent history of the church, checkered as it is by the flaws of the faithful and by the oppression of the world nonetheless continues the fulfillment of these purposes and is a testimony to God's faithfulness to us. So, this glorious truth is part of Micah's strategy to focus our attention on God and to correct our interpretation of how we see our church, our denomination, and the kingdom of God in general. In place of our short-sightedness, our myopia, Hear the word of the Lord. This is a wonderful phrase from verse 15. I will show you marvelous things. What does that mean? Before we go there, 
your church plant, let me, I'm flipping this around before, before the marvelous things come about. Your church plant may seem to be stagnant. Your pastoral counseling seems to produce little fruit. Maybe that's the case. Your witness to your neighbor may seem to be going nowhere. Only God knows. The sin which you thought had been conquered has reared its head yet again. Alas. The point is not to ignore the realities around us. This is not burying our head in the sand in some kind of ostrich-like behavior. But to see these realities, to evaluate them, and especially to respond to them in light of who God is, in light of what he's doing now, and in light of what we know he will do in the future because his word is reliable. Sometimes the remnant is a savor of death to death. That's in God's hands. Other times, praise be to God, the remnant, we are a fragrance of life to life. But if there is one thing that is clear in this passage, it is this. Nothing can stop or even slow down God's saving purposes for his people. But that is not all. Micah invites us to enter into his experience again in a third way in verses 14 and 15 where he presents the prayer of the remnant in 14 and God's response in 15. So basically the remnant asks God to guide, protect, and provide for it as a flock and refers to itself as his people and his inheritance. So their petition is grounded, in other words, on the fact that God covenantally owns them. They belong to him, and he is their God. So their request is, in other words, simply that God would fulfill his covenant purposes towards them. They're holding him to his word, and God is happy to be held to his word. Look at verse 15. He responds immediately, so he confirms that he will do something, not that he fulfills his intention right then and there, but there's an immediate confirmation, yes, your prayer has been heard, and I will in the future do such and such. God assures them that their prayer has been heard. He also reveals, this is where the marvelous bit comes in, that his response to the prayer will be superlative. It's not just another exodus from exile, which would be good, to be sure. It goes above and beyond the exodus from Egypt and over, above and beyond God's victory over his enemies at the Red Sea. In short, God commits to bringing his spiritually defined remnant, that's who we're dealing with in chapter 7, into the full possession of the inheritance he has reserved for them. So think especially of the, of the end of Exodus 15, bringing them into his holy mountain and so on. That's where this is going. And keep chapter 4 in view as well. This radically surpasses, as we saw earlier, the territory that God has promised to Abraham and the population that, to date at least, had been identified as the people of God. So in verse 15 in particular, God promises to bring his people into nothing less than the new heavens and the new earth to give them the rest that Christ has obtained for them and to bring them into his very presence, which again is evidence in Exodus 15. Micah very fittingly ends in doxology, this is now 18 and following, giving the reader one more way to join his or her voice to that of the prophet in amazement at God's salvation. So if we had the time, for example, when we read this passage, we should slow down more and more as we get closer and closer to the end of the passage because it becomes more and more dense as the prophet doesn't run out of words, but the words are just not enough to convey what he's trying to say. The question, who is a God like you, as you probably know, is a wordplay on Micah's name, who is like Yahweh. It should not surprise us that the answer to that question ties God's absolute uniqueness, at least to some degree, to his willingness to pardon sin. Verses 18 and 19 are heavily indebted on the one hand to Exodus 15, 
the song in praise of Yahweh for his deliverance of Israel at the Red Sea, and to Exodus 34, where his character is spelled out as, so to speak, the only reason that Israel wasn't totally destroyed at the foot of Mount Sinai for abandoning Yahweh and worshiping the golden calf. However, as I've been trying to say, the, the military deliverance, which is the language of Exodus 15 for that event, is used now in Micah's vision of the future and in the remnant's prayer to Yahweh to describe something even greater, God's marvelous work of fully <coughs> forgiving his people's sin and throwing the sins into the sea of his pardon where they will disappear forever. It will do us good, I think, to ponder briefly Micah's description of God's grace in reconciling himself with sinners in these verses. So 18 and 19. Note first the prominence of sin. This is not a, well, you've got some work to do here, but there's potential. This is honest. Iniquity, rebellion, iniquities, plural, and sin. In a word, apart from divine intervention, nothing is going to happen here. The situation is hopeless. Second, and if you count them, there are seven. Notice the divine actions and the attributes behind them that account for the removal of our sin. God pardons iniquity, passes over rebellion, does not retain anger forever, makes the remnant his inheritance, has compassion on us, subdues our iniquities, and casts our sin into the depths of the sea. Amen. Verse 20, appropriately enough, doesn't talk about sin at all. In the end, literarily speaking, theologically speaking even, all that remains is the fruit of God's saving faithfulness to Jacob and his chesed, his faithful love, to Abraham. So it is indeed fitting that Micah ends on a note of doxology. Who is like God? Who is comparable to a God who is transcendent, majestic, entirely self-sufficient in his Trinitarian existence, and who nonetheless condescends to create and eventually even to redeem human beings. What other God possesses infinite holiness and yet in his wisdom devises a way in which he draws so close to us that God the Son takes on our nature for us and for our salvation. Well, as we close, there's, I think, one final question that we must face if we are to apply this text to ourselves as we ought. It is this. There's a long intro, but I'm trying to phrase it in a clear way. Taking for granted that each of us is to some degree aware of how far short we fall of seeing ourselves and the church and the world in the theocentric way that Micah calls us to, here's the question. Why have we been content to view these things as we have until now? So this is not a question we're going to resolve in two minutes, but it's worth thinking through. We could rephrase it, if you wish. Where else has my hope been placed? If I'm not 100% based, my confidence is not 100% based in Yahweh's word, what 10, 20% has been based elsewhere? In my ability, my hard work, my holiness, my denomination, my orthodoxy, my political party, other answers are possible. Or we can approach the problem from the other direction. How have I lost sight of the glory of God as it's revealed in Jesus Christ? Just like that. How have I lost sight of his unshakable purpose to reconcile all things to himself through the blood of the cross? How is it even possible, 
sadly it is, but how is it possible that I've lost the wonder and amazement that necessarily go with the experience of salvation? How have I become inert or pessimistic, at least, in light of the church's mission to preach the gospel throughout the world, a mission in which all believers participate in one way or another? To rephrase the question in one sentence, what has pushed God out of the center of my vision, of my hope, of my experience? Let's work through just one of these problems and use God's truth to correct at least a little bit our theological myopia. Let's suppose that we are losing confidence in the power of the gospel due to increasing hostility here and there in the world, due to modest results in terms of conversions as far as we can judge, whatever. I'm sure you have a reason, as I do, for falling into this uh, sin. What should we do? Let's begin with Micah's emphasis on God's promise to Abraham, and in the background, so to speak, the Davidic promise, that he would be the father of many nations. So, since in fulfillment of Micah 4.2, the new temple, God has exalted his new temple beyond all expectation in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Since he has promised that peoples and nations will come to him, same context, and since he will accomplish his purposes through the gospel, whether preached, shared in evangelism, printed, spread online, we may be fully confident that he will continue to add to his people, those who must be saved, as Acts says, through these simple means. We plant, someone else waters, God alone is responsible for creating life and growth. Indeed, Micah's description of the remnant shows that it is not in our power to produce repentance and faith. But it also makes clear that the remnant is to be characterized by holiness, this is the end of chapter 5, by trust in God's wisdom, and by submission to his sovereignty. So, even if your situation seems all too similar to Micah's, there's no fruit on the trees, there's not a single grape on the vine, I'm all alone, this is chapter 7 again, even if society and the church seem to be disintegrating, or at least crumbling slowly, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. The, the last noun in that phrase struck me again recently. It's not just a title, it's a reality. Our confidence is in the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Again, we know creation is a fact, but what it means is that those things that don't exist come to exist. Our confidence is in the God who brings light into the gospel, the light of the gospel into the hearts of sinners. Questions like the one we've just considered and the others I mentioned in passing are not easy to ask, nor will the answers to them be flattering. But the truth about ourselves, our attitudes, where we place our hope in reality, despite what we say, must be sought. We have to be honest with ourselves. Only when we see where and how things have gone wrong in this area can we repent of that sin and begin to correct our drift away from a God-centered, God-oriented outlook and life. But there is hope, as this passage makes very clear. God's ability and readiness to subdue our iniquities, this is back near the end of chapter 7, assures us that he will overcome these sins' power, not only their guilt. In other words, a theocentric understanding of progressive sanctification will prevent us from being crushed under the weight of our sins, or by disappointment as we look at the church and the world around us. 
and will direct our faith, our effort, our hope to God's power in Jesus Christ to put these sins to death and to establish his kingdom fully as he transforms us from one degree of glory to another. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, as you teach us to say with your prophet, you are our God. We trust in you. We confess that our eyes often look away from you and that our faith falters, that our lives uh, fail to glorify you as they ought. Have mercy upon us, we pray, so that by your grace to us through Jesus Christ, we might more and more wait for you, the God of our salvation, confident that you will deliver us and all your people from our sins and bring us into your kingdom. Hasten that day, we pray, make the gospel run swiftly in our hearts and lives, in our ministries, and in your church. And make us faithful followers of Jesus Christ in the world until his return. We pray in his name. Amen.